Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the tsunami and the nuclear disaster in Japan in in 2011, um, there was a power shock. The latest effort to prevent a meltdown at a Japanese nuclear plant is coming from above. Helicopters dropped thousands of gallons of water on the overheating reactors on Wednesday, while crews sprayed water from trucks outside the reactor. A series of rolling blackouts. Because of the loss of Fukushima and some other plants that were damaged as a result of the earthquake and tsunami, this country has lost 30% of its electrical capacity. 30%, that is a massive figure. And it was an extraordinary time because not only was the national mood very dark and very somber, but the, the city, Tokyo, which is sort of known for its bright lights, um, was also dark. Henry Trix is our Shumpeter columnist. He was the Economist's Japan bureau chief when the Fukushima disaster happened. It was really strange. I, I would go and talk to government officials who were working late into the night trying to deal with the crisis that was unfolding over the country. The Japanese government has brought in limits on electricity consumption in Tokyo and northern Japan. The aim is to cut the use of power by 15% for big office blocks, factories and department stores. And you'd go into the government offices and the lights were dimmed and you had to walk up long flights of stairs because the elevators uh, were not working, the lifts weren't working. Uh, and then, you know, you would go into these rooms and it was, a, it, was, it was March. So it was still very chilly in Tokyo. Uh, and um, it really brought home, I guess, what an energy crisis is like. It was a time of tremendous national unity, uh, at least um, in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. And one of the things that was fascinating was to see how quickly the Japanese uh, accustomed themselves to these energy shortages. They had a name for it. They called it setsuden in Japanese, which meant energy saving. And um, it was almost done with civic pride. Now, more than a decade later, the cause of Europe's energy crisis is different. But the fear is that it is moving in a similar direction. Having witnessed that in Japan, one fears the impacts of energy shortages in Europe, partly because it's going to be even colder. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show... What to do to keep Europe warm this winter? First, we'll look at what's already being done. Some governments have given income support to households. 
They have given them checks, vouchers to help with their energy bills. That's one category. Another broad category is that they have tried to suppress the price increases. Then we will hear what's being proposed. The main thing that's being looked at now by us as a company and working with the government is how do you disaggregate the gas price and the electricity price? And then we'll outline what can and should be done to keep homes warm. The combination of having retail prices reflect the scarcity and being very generous, particularly at the bottom end of the income distribution with, uh, with a cash handout, I think is still the best solution. Hey, Mike and Alice. Hey, Samir. How are you doing? It's uh, been quite a week for you, our Britain economics editor. Yeah, not much going on. Pretty chill. Just a new prime minister and a rapidly escalating energy crisis. Basically your usual Wednesday. At least that means you should be in a perfect position to present this episode, though. Which, in true Money Talks fashion, is on an incredibly grim subject. Indeed it is. Europe's looming energy crisis has escalated once again. To recap quickly, supplies of Russian oil and gas to Europe have been drastically reduced because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Lower supply has pushed up prices. The latest element is that the G7 nations have agreed to a price cap on Russian oil that they announced on September the 2nd. A global price cap will help us accomplish our two goals. The first one is significantly reduce Putin's biggest source of revenue for his war chest. Number two, ensure that oil continues to flow into the market at lower prices and supply meets demand. It's unclear how effective this might be in reducing European prices because Russia might just sell to more buyers elsewhere that don't care about the cap. And the Russians have already retaliated by suspending the flow of gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which transits through Germany, cutting supply to Europe even more. And that has not been good news for prices. Right. Morgan Stanley is now estimating that EU gas and power costs may increase by around 1.2 trillion euros, or around 8% of GDP. That's compared to 0.2 trillion euros before the crisis. And that's assuming no intervention. We're going to spend this episode talking about what should be done to cope with these high prices. And there are some very tricky trade-offs here. Yeah, ideally you would want a scheme that was cheap, that gets help to those who need it most, and that gives people the right incentives. Now, I've been thinking a lot about the situation in Britain, but as this is a Europe-wide problem, we are going to be joined by our Europe economics editor, Christian Odendahl. Christian, hello. Hi, Samaya. So what's your plan for heating your home this winter? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm hoping for a mild winter and uh, may have to put on uh, another sweater. Hmm. Okay, well, sweaters are good. Um, Mine, in case you're interested, involves coming into the office rather a lot. Um, Now, before we talk about all of the policies being proposed to, to help deal with this energy crisis... Could you just quickly run through how much energy prices have increased? Sure. So I think power prices is probably what most people are concerned with at the moment in the discussion. And power prices on wholesale markets have been around 50 euros per megawatt hour in in Europe typically. And during the pandemic, it was even lower. And and now wholesale prices are around 700 uh, for the month of November. So that gives you a bit of an idea of the dimensions involved. And for gas, it's similar. Uh, We we used to have around 30 and now it's 230. So 
It's a massive increase in power prices. And can you just give us the dummy's guide why energy prices have increased so much? Well, I think there are two big reasons for this. Uh, the first is that we've had a loss of generating capacity in Europe, nuclear power and hydropower in, in particular, nuclear in part because of maintenance in, in France and uh, shutdowns in Germany, and hydropower because water levels in, in rivers and hydro dams were quite a bit lower. In usual circumstances, those would have been replaced by more coal or more gas-fired uh, power. And that, in fact, has been happening, but gas prices are a lot higher than they used to be because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that in turn has restricted supply. And we know that gas prices now sets, uh, set the power price. And so that makes uh, energy extremely expensive at the moment. Right. And so what you're talking about there is this marginal pricing model that there is in the, in the energy market. So at the moment, you've got lots of energy producers where prices are very high, but it's not like their costs of production have risen by that much. No, that's right. How power prices are uh, organized is that all generators meet on one market and bid according to their costs. And then the price is set by the last power plant that is still needed to meet demand. And that usually is one of the more flexible power generators, um, and it, uh, oftentimes it is gas. And so usually that's not that much of a problem because those, over time, of course, investment and generating capacity and so forth leads to a cost structure that makes sense for our power demand. But of course, in a situation like this, where we have a shock to generating capacity and extremely high gas prices, that means the power price is set by extremely costly gas power plants. And that means a power plant that is generating with very low cost but can currently sell power in spot markets for very high prices is making a lot of money. Okay, that makes sense. So basically, energy prices are set by the highest cost power producer, which recently has been a gas-fired power plant. And so generators using wind farms or, or solar panels are paid the same high amount for the energy they're producing, even though their costs are not as high. Um, can you talk a bit now about where in Europe is most vulnerable to these high prices? So the European power markets are all connected. And so the power prices uh, usually are, are relatively similar. Um, we have seen some divergence. For example, in northern Sweden, power prices are still extremely low because the interconnectors between northern Sweden and the rest of Europe are too small to transport more electricity south. Uh, we've seen increasing divergence between Poland and Germany, for example, where Germany's power prices are quite a bit higher. And uh, we are still seeing extremely high prices in France, where it's still unclear how fast the nuclear capacity in France will come back online. So bottom line is that energy supplies everywhere are tight, but there are some differences in, um, in how European countries are affected. Yeah, I mean, I guess just bringing in something from Britain, obviously here in Britain, we are much more reliant on natural gas to power our electricity grid. And also households are very reliant on, on gas for heating their homes. And so they're just very vulnerable. And then another really special decision that was made a few years ago means that Britain doesn't have very much storage for gas. And so we're forced to buy it when we need it, which makes us very, very vulnerable to these very volatile prices. Well, Germany managed to sell its gas storage to a Russian company that intentionally kept it at low levels in 2021. So I'm not sure which country is winning out here. Great. I mean, this is not a contest anyone wants to win. I mean, I suppose normally the high prices would be a sign of the market working, right? Supplies are really tight and the price is what the market 
uses to ration out those tight supplies. And also higher prices create incentives to cut back on energy when you don't really need it. But here, I think politicians are increasingly recognizing that the market is throwing out prices that are so high that using them to to ration out supplies without doing anything else is just untenable. And I guess the fundamental question now is, what are we going to do? So I think there are two ways in which governments have tried to tackle this. Some see high prices and think about regulating prices. I mean, this is probably the natural tendency for people when they see high prices, they want to bring them down somewhat. And the other camp is sort of, okay, there are high prices that may be justified because of genuine scarcity. So let's try to help consumers pay for those bills by giving them cash. I think those are roughly the two options that, that policymakers have. We're going to spend the rest of the show looking at those two buckets, direct relief to consumers and also price controls. And then, Christian, we are going to hear from you again at the end about which plans you think are the best. Great. Sounds good. One person who has spent months looking at the various options being discussed and implemented is Oya Selassun. She's assistant director in the European Department at the International Monetary Fund, and she was the lead author on a paper published last month looking at how Europe can protect the poor from surging energy prices. Oya, hello. Hello. Very nice to speak to you. Could you outline what you think the ideal response from governments should be? The ideal response would be to provide income support to households in a targeted manner. So those with the least means to cope with the shock and those that are most exposed to the shock would get more support than those that need it less. So low-income households that end up being saddled with high energy bills because perhaps they live in energy inefficient housing or have gas heated homes, they would receive more income support. The support would be gradually decreased as you move along the income distribution. Yet, households would feel the increase in prices. They would adjust their demand, but they would, their loss in income would be made up for, for low income households. So that's the ideal case, but it's difficult to do that, deliver that type of support quickly. What do you think are the unintended consequences of trying to prevent households from facing these higher prices? So the unintended consequence of that could be that you don't achieve the needed reduction in demand. What that would mean is that somebody else's consumption would have to be squeezed. So if household demand doesn't contract, let's say by 10%, 15%, I'm just giving examples here, then it would have to be the firms where the contraction in demand would have to come from. And that would mean lost jobs, ultimately lost capital. So one has to strike a balance between that. Also, when you take measures that suppress prices and suppress the contraction in demand, then it could also be other countries that bear the brunt of this cost. This is a globally interconnected market. Many countries are price takers. So to the extent that there is less contraction in demand in Europe, that would mean the contraction has to happen elsewhere in countries that cannot afford these high prices. But none of this is to say that vulnerable households uh, don't need support. They need support to be able to get through this um, cost of living crisis. But one has to strike a balance between all these considerations when designing the support. 
Now, one of the criticisms of this idea that you can just use the welfare system to help out the poorer households is the worry that it may not reach households that are really struggling. So so perhaps the welfare system reaches the very poorest households, but those in the middle of the income distribution might really be hurting, and it's difficult to see how increasing benefits will help them. Uh, and you just mentioned speed being another issue. I mean, what are the compromises that one has to make as a result of that? You are right. I mean, existing social safety nets would not be adequate to deliver the type of ideal support where you have graduated income support to people along the income distribution. These systems, these social safety nets typically only reach the lowest income households. Winter is coming, so there isn't so much time left to design the ideal program. So with that in mind, do you think that any country out there has done enough at this point? That's a hard question, but the the issue is that the problem has grown in scale since we wrote our paper. I think all countries will have to look for new solutions. Uh, What they have done will not be enough. There are some countries that are better at targeting the support by incomes, the Nordic countries and Poland. Germany is trying to give some tax relief to all of the employed, the self-employed and those on mini-jobs based on tax returns, delivering some cash through employers. Uh, It's taking a few months, but that's, even if it's a lump sum, it's taxable. So people in the higher income brackets will have to pay a greater tax out of it than the lower income ones. And that fixed amount is proportionately a greater support for the poor. So that was a quite a creative way of trying to provide income support in a country where, again, social safety net only covers the poor, but it's taking a few months. I don't think we've seen the ideal solution yet. Oya, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, after the break, we are going to hear from Keith Anderson, the boss of Scottish Power, about what he thinks should be done in the short and long term to help with energy prices. But before that... It is our favourite time of the show. You are going to be absolutely shocked to find out that we are going to ask you to subscribe to The Economist. You can keep abreast of all our latest coverage of the energy crisis. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And if you are already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should also consider signing up to our newsletters to both Money Talks and The Bottom Line at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes of this episode. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. We talked about transfers for consumers. Now, another proposal in the UK would essentially cap the price of energy bills um, for households. 
It's been championed by Keith Anderson, the CEO of Scottish Power. Now, Scottish Power made a decision a few years ago to become a 100% renewables generator and moving away from natural gas. Keith, welcome to Money Talks. Could you just describe briefly the, the situation currently facing Scottish Power? I mean, why are prices so high? As we were all coming out of the pandemic, there was already pressure coming onto the gas price uh, because we saw a big international uplift in demand. What we've had since then is obviously the, the situation in Ukraine, a lot of uncertainty about the reliability and security of gas supplies. One, it's put the price up, but what it's also done more than just that is create a huge amount of volatility. And in the UK, uh, the way the wholesale electricity market works, it is actually predominantly linked to the price of gas because of the use of gas-fired generation in the electricity market. And therefore, those high gas prices are feeding also straight through to electricity prices, which creates you know, a double pressure uh, at the consumer end uh, and also at a business part of the economy as well. Right. We were hearing earlier from my colleague Christian about this marginal producer pricing system. And so that means that we're in a world now where gas prices have gone up, there's scarcity of gas supply, but marginal costs for producers using renewables, like yourself, haven't risen by nearly the same extent. I mean, who is making money from this? <laughs> okay, I mean, look, that's a, it's, you know, it's a good question and a good point to look at. I think what you're seeing now and the way the market works in the United Kingdom is most generators sell their power out into the forward market. So, for example, you know, if you're sitting this year in 2022, we're almost at the end of the year, I, you know, I would suspect any generator will have sold out 90 to 95% of their power. If you look at next year, again, what you'll tend to find is most generators will have sold out power into the forward market, particularly renewable generators, because the way the market works in the UK is suppliers to customers, in effect, are encouraged to and really have to have firm power. So they buy power from the wholesale market that's guaranteed for delivery. And therefore, renewables generators are encouraged to sell their power out into the forward market at a forward price and a fixed price. So right now, you're probably not seeing renewable generators make significant additional amounts of money because the power's all been sold out into that forward market. So what do you think should be done? The main thing that's being looked at now by us as a company and working with the government is... How do you disaggregate the gas price and the electricity price? Okay, And that's the big solution that should be worked on. So as the government implement a scheme to help protect customers, um, that scheme in and of itself is not a solution. It's a mechanism to buy us time to change the market and change the wholesale power market, which is what we need to do. And one part of that has to be how do you split electricity away from gas? So how do we stop the gas price, if you like, infecting the electricity price? And there are mechanisms through which that can be done so that what you then end up with is the cheap renewable energy flowing straight through to a customer's bill. And in getting it to that customer's bill, there is no uplift in the price because of gas and because of the shortage in the gas market. Okay, well, that's the long-term solution. What about in the short term? 
So the scheme and the idea you know, we've put forward, uh, and we think it's probably the most significant and sensible option, is that the government steps in and looks at freezing the price of gas and electricity um, at an agreed level. You know, and the government will have to determine what level that is. And then the differential between that price and, if you like, the true market price, uh, the government would need to step in uh, and subsidise. Obviously, you know, a scheme of that nature, that requires, because of its size and scale, it requires state intervention. That's not something the market can do on its own. And you also need to know how do you bring that to an end. And the main way of having confidence that you can bring that to an end is by really accelerating your investment in renewables, really accelerating the drive to move you away from a reliance on gas and investing in the infrastructure that allows you to do that so that what you can do is start to switch and push through the cheap renewables power directly to customers. And therefore, in 18 months or two years' time, even if we're still in a volatile gas world, you have got so much renewables on the system that customers are no longer paying high prices for the future of their electricity bill. I guess the big criticism of proposals to freeze prices is that we're in some ways trying to wish our way out of the problem, right, which is that there is this scarcity of supply. And if you're not using the price mechanism to ration out that supply, then you need something else. You need something else to allocate or curb demand. Yeah, no, look, you're absolutely correct, okay? So and and that's absolutely the right way to look at it. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm... really strongly encouraging the government to look at it this way, which is you know, the, a price freeze or a price intervention is not an end solution. Okay? Um, the purpose of it is to help people directly, absolutely, but what you need to do is to have a whole other series of measures uh, for the medium to long term that resolve the issue. And so that's where the measures are, disaggregating the cost of gas and electricity, so that you get cheap renewable power through. Price intervention is not an end solution. It's a short-term mechanism to buy you time to fix the problem. Who is going to pay for this, right? I mean, just taking the the price freeze idea, I think there are, broadly speaking, three options. One is is windfall taxes, or taxes on energy producers and, and suppliers. Another one would be just general taxation. Another option would be the government could levy some amount on on bills. Do you have a view on whether one of those is better than another? For me, my position, my role and our company's role is to put forward options to the government in terms of the design of a scheme and what that scheme does and how long the scheme should last and then what other measures can we put in place to allow the scheme to come to an end. Ultimately, in terms of how the scheme is funded, that's really a choice for government. Keith, thank you so much. That's okay. Good. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now I want to bring Christian back in. Christian, hello. I hope you've been staying warm. Well, I'm in the studio with you, so, and this is tiny, so yes. Great. We have heard about direct help to consumers, um, as well as the plan floated by Scottish Power to cap bills, um, to cap the unit price for energy directly. What do you think is best? 
So I think even for retail customers, it's important that there is some form of price signal. So that's uh, the scarcity of energy that we are currently experiencing is also felt by consumers um, so that they make the right decisions on how to use energy. Um, at the same time, uh, of course, there needs to be quite a bit of compensation, particularly for lower-income households who simply cannot afford these high-end electricity bills. Um, so I, I still think that the combination of having retail prices reflect the scarcity and being very generous, particularly at the bottom end of the income distribution with, uh, with a cash handout, um, I think is still the best solution. It seems to me that there are questions first about how you allocate limited supply and then second, questions about how you pay for all of this. And the options are, I think, you know, should it be through borrowing funded by general taxation? Should it be repaid with some sort of levy on energy bills? Or should there be taxes on those making these supernormal profits, windfall-like taxes, which is what Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, has been discussing? So it is now time for the consumers to benefit from the low costs of low-carbon sources, like, for example, the renewables, we will propose to re-channel these unexpected profits. We channel them to the member states so that the member states can support the vulnerable households and vulnerable companies. I mean, historically, The Economist has been fairly sceptical of the idea of, of windfall taxes, taxes on these profits of these energy producers. Though, given just how much prices are increasing right now, I think we are becoming warmer. Ha ha ha. Christian, what do you think? I think there is a good case against uh, against these kinds of windfall taxes uh, because there are some businesses that rely on the volatility of, of the market over years and they need some periods of, of high, high, high revenues uh, to, to make their business work. Now we have a situation where businesses that did not necessarily rely on this volatility on on the on the wild fluctuation of prices potentially gaining a lot from the current market setup and so that's a, that's a bit different than the than the previous case against against windfall taxes and here i think there is a case because the amounts involved are just so enormous also for governments um, to to fund that there is a case of of making sure that some of the extra gains being made on the market, this is not just the producers, it's also some of the retail companies, is financial market participants and so forth. There's some way of clawing back some of those profits and, and redirect them uh, towards energy consumers. And this is also what is being debated on the continent and the European Union. Um, other than that, I don't think that borrowing necessarily is the best cause of action at the moment where we would sort of at a demand stimulus at a time when uh, inflation is high already and when this is really mostly a redistributional problem. And so if needed, then it needs to be funded through higher general taxation. Last question. We opened the show with Henry's memories of, of blackouts, extreme restrictions on the quantity of energy that people in Japan were using after Fukushima. Is that kind of thing a possibility here, do you think? I think at this point, we are not excluding any possibility anymore. Um, I think that policymakers across Europe have tried hard over the summer to avoid the situation come winter, for example, by filling storages at extremely high costs. And so far, we are on track with the storage filling as regards gas. But it all depends on whether this will be a very cold winter 
or not, because that will impact the gas storage levels come February or so, at which point we may come to a point uh, when gas supply is too low. I hope that it won't come to that, of course. Yep. I also hope it doesn't come to that. Christian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Alice, Mike, any final thoughts? One of the things that's been so interesting as you've discussed this topic with all of our guests this week has been thinking about what we were discussing last week and that sort of slow transition that we're trying to engineer from combustion engine cars to electric vehicles and how, you know, the time horizon we were talking about there is 30 years. This week, we're having sort of similar discussions, you know, talking about things like subsidies. How do you encourage people to change their behaviour using sort of different kinds of energy? But we have condensed that discussion into essentially sort of one winter. You know, we need to do this now or people will freeze and or starve this winter in Europe. And it's been interesting to hear people's different perspectives on this. I think where I came down listening to everyone is that the sort of tiered help for households that helps insulate them against the sort of costs of those bills, but also that leaves in place some sort of incentive to ration demand is probably the right solution here. But I understand just the enormity of this issue is is really sort of mind boggling. Yeah, I think I've been thinking along similar lines, which is I've, I've sort of been thinking a lot about the same state capacity and sort of resilience issues in in policymaking that came up a lot during COVID as well, where I think I, I would completely agree with Alice and I think I would agree with it. You know, it's it's essentially the, the view of most people at The Economist, I think, that it would be best to pay people with cash support, maintain um, price signals in energy markets. But what you run up against in these sort of extreme, sudden emergency scenarios is that there are all sorts of sort of grim technical limitations in the support that you can provide. And again, you, you saw this during COVID. And I think it makes me think quite a lot about maybe we should be dedicating more time to the sort of the mechanisms by which we provide this sort of support and by which we identify people that need supporting in these sort of scenarios. Because we've now sort of twice in the past three years had these uh, spending programs worth tens of billions, collectively hundreds of billions of pounds, which are being constructed essentially because we can't provide support in certain ways. So we're left with all these sort of second best options that only seem to come to the fore during these emergency situations. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, we moved out of a world of first best a while ago. And the way that governments are going, it looks like the thing that is going to lose out from this, that the trade off that's going to be made is that these interventions are going to be very, very expensive. In the UK, it looks like they're really throwing the kitchen sink at this. And you know, financing conditions are a bit different to how they were during COVID. And so that's what I'm watching, right? The government's trying to spend its way out of this problem. In the UK, there's a lot of reluctance to apply windfall taxes or even immediate tax increases elsewhere. And so you're going to have just a, a pretty high deficit for the medium term. And, and the question is how investors are going to respond to that, what, what kind of costs that will bring. Um, should we transition to our stats of the week? Yes, absolutely. I will jump in first. And my stat of the week is negative $1.18 billion. Um, that stat is the South Korean 
goods trade deficit uh, in July. Um, the reason I have gone with that is that I think it is a fascinating illustration of what is going on, um, in large part with the subject of this week's episode. They've basically been driven into a, a deficit in large part because of the uh, the energy crisis, because of imports of energy. Uh, South Korea is a large importer of energy, um, and this is uh, you know the country of... Hyundai and Samsung and SK and POSCO, um, they're usually a country that has a fairly large uh, goods trade surplus. They had a $5.5 billion one in July last year. And I think it's just another um, signal of how wide ranging the effects of this sort of crisis are. You do love a negative number. I'm surprised you didn't uh, say it in one. Um, my stat has nothing to do with energy or even really economics, but I couldn't resist slipping a tennis stat in during the US Open, which is 19 years. That is the number of years that have elapsed since none of Serena Williams, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer's have been in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. So the last time none of them were in a quarterfinal was 2003. This US Open has been a sort of real changing of the guard and whichever man wins the title, it will be their first Grand Slam. See, I knew I was going to be criticised for saying it in one. I deliberately said it in dollars to avoid the criticism that I was inflating my statistics by denominating them in extremely uh, weak currencies. Um, and and I've, I've been criticised anyway for not doing it this time. I see right through you, Mike. My stat is 3.5, which is the relative cost of running a tumble dryer compared to a washing machine for about an hour and a half cycle. So I think in this time of constrained supplies, we are all going to become much more aware of the the various costs of using various appliances. So yeah, tumble dryer, much more expensive than using your, your washing machine. And so American listeners may think, well, that's weird because British tumble dryers don't work. And yeah, I mean, I remember being in America and your tumble dryers destroying my clothes into a kind of fried crisp. So ours are less effective than that and also more expensive than than using a washing machine. And on that note, a huge thanks to Keith Anderson and Oya Salasun. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us and send statistics solely to me at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.